This morning we continue in our readings in 1 Corinthians. And as I was sitting with this text this week, I had the sort of humorous thought in my mind that uh, maybe Paul began his letter about divisions because he knew the temptations we would all have to divide over the topics which are to come. Um, I mean, these are some of the hardest topics uh, you can find anywhere in the New Testament, and I can guarantee you that in this room there would be differences of opinions about these things, and so perhaps it was good that we were able to talk about divisions in the church before we started talking about things like human sexuality and that kind of thing. So first up, honey, aren't you glad that you came to church? First up uh, in this letter is church discipline over sexual behavior. <laughs> so we're diving right in uh, to the things that, that Paul's concerned about. So as we just heard read, uh, you hear this sort of appalledness in Paul, that there is sexuality of this kind amongst the church and that they're not doing anything about it. He says, and this is very interesting in the Greek text and everybody reading this would have knew what Paul meant by this, he says, and it's of the kind of sexual immorality that not even the ethne, the pagans. Now this is crucial because what's happening in Paul's imagination is you're the church, you're the covenant people of God. You're no longer the ethne. Ethne is simply the Greek word for everybody who's not Jewish. It's for the whole rest of the world, the, like the secular world. So there was God's chosen people, the Jews, and then there was everybody else. And the Greek term for the everybody else is ethne. And Paul says, even the ethne would be shocked by this. For instance, Cicero, who lived a whole generation before Jesus, has a long passage. You know, he's the famous Ro uh, Roman orator, probably the most famous person of his time. And he has a passage in, in this about how scandalous it would be for somebody be, to be sleeping with their father's wife, whether it's a first, second, or third wife. I mean, it's worse, obviously, if it's your mother. In this case, you've got a second wife. But still, this is scandalous that anybody would do this. Even in the non-covenant world, this is a scandalous thing that a man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, the term Paul has for this is the term pornea. Obviously, we get words like pornographic from it. And pornea is sort of a catch-all term in the Greek New Testament for all manner of sexual sin. And the reason is, is that the world that Paul's addressing and the world from which these Gentile converts had come was a world, believe it or not, that was as sort of sexually active and sexually screwed up as us, only with an ancient spin on it. I mean, they were them and we are us, but the, the human drivers and processes that were going on were very much the same. So that, for instance, pornea was a classic word for engaging with prostitutes. And amongst the ethne, this was actually not a big deal. I mean, how you treated a, pro a prostitute could be an issue, whether you're paying for it or bartering. There would be these little sort of ethical issues around it. But the fact of using prostitutes was kind of no big deal amongst the ethne. In fact, there's a saying that was very popular at the time that goes like this. And ladies, I'm very sorry for this worldview. I just want to say up front, heart to heart, I'm very sorry for this worldview. But nevertheless, this was sort of the basic saying. Mistresses we keep for pleasure. Concubines for the daily needs of our bodies. And wives to bear us legitimate children. Now, that was the basic ethic. And no one really questioned it of the people who are outside the covenant people of God. 
But for Paul, he sees in here, and it's, it's very important, I think, that you get this, that Paul's not like some puritanical prude who's upset at two human beings having intercourse. That's like, whatever. What Paul's concerned about here is the community. Paul gets that human beings are going to do what they do with their bodily bits whenever and however they want to do it. And it's relatively good or bad, appropriate or inappropriate. But that's not Paul's concern. Paul's concern here is I got to teach these people that they're now the new covenant people of God. And this behavior is actually expressly forbidden in the covenant law. Deuteronomy and Leviticus both expressly talk about this. Now, so why is Paul trying to do that? Is he trying to defend the Torah? No. He's trying to give them an imagination. He's trying to draw them into a covenant worldview so that you don't define yourself first and foremost about your sexual needs, whether that's fulfilled by a mistress or a prostitute or a legitimate wife. That your first sense of yourself is I'm of the covenant people of God. And covenant peopledness has boundaries around it, as uncomfortable as that might make us feel today. There were, in God's view, boundaries that created and expressed this new people. But Paul's dealing with people who are new to faith, they're new to Christian spirituality, and what's happening primarily amongst them is this sense of like super spirituality. That they had arrived at some new plane of spiritual wisdom and enlightenment, and that Paul just needed to get over himself. Like, this is okay. Um, somehow they just thought that whatever they were spiritually, therefore the body didn't matter. Could have been an early form of dualism. We can't know for sure exactly what was in their minds. We have to try to read backwards into it. But there was certainly some sort of sense of a spirituality that made such sexual issues not really matter. So I love the way Eugene gets this in the message. He says, you're acting so above it all that it doesn't even phase you. Shouldn't this break your hearts? Why? Like, why is that false? Paul's first concern is that the community's heart's not broken. His first concern is not a, what you might think of as a moralistic behavior. Though that matters, it's not his primarily concern. That's a secondary concern. The primary concern here is the reaction of the community of faith. Why isn't your heart broken about this? Shouldn't it bring you to your knees? Shouldn't this person in his conduct be confronted and dealt with? Well, again, why? And we'll answer as we go along. Now, it's important to say here that in the biblical and theological and philosophical traditions, in all of those traditions, so let me say that again. So think Bible, think theology, and you can think of even the philosophy of ethics. In any of those categories, justice never meant to say, treat everybody exactly the same. That is not what the sense, that's not what justice means. Justice means treating people precisely appropriate. That's biblical justice. Well, once you use the word like appropriate, that means you have to make distinctions between different sorts of people in different sort of situations. Now, I know who I'm saying that to. And not just to you, but everybody who listens to this podcast in Orange County and Southern California and the world. I get it. I get who I'm saying that to. I get how uncomfortable it 
makes us feel that there are times when justice actually calls for a previous sense of making things discreet or specific. Otherwise, how can you know it all right from wrong? But I know, again, we live in this era where that feels like dangerous territory because who's adequate to say what's moral? Isn't this all perspectival, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Ad, ad nauseum, I get it. And I actually have huge patience for it. But we're left to grapple with this. That biblical justice first means making distinctions. And so justice never meant to say that this gives everybody the right to active expression to any and every kind of sexual desire. That is never what justice meant. Now again, I get that that's counterintuitive, but let's just wrestle with it. Let's just think maybe that's actually true. That what justice is is the coming of God's good intention for humanity. Please look at me and catch this. Justice is the coming of God's pure, loving, good intention for humanity. But once that begins to come, it's like putting um, something in a glass full of water. It begins then as a natural consequence to remove things that don't fit as God's justice comes. And those are all the things that we see written about the Bi in the Bible over and over again as being wrong. Well, now Paul gets really bad. And, and again, this just so shakes our sense of anything appropriate, where he says, you, gotta, you need to put this man out of your fellowship. You need to handle, I mean, just think of how harsh this language sounds. You need to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, for Paul, what that means is sort of put him back in the ethne, and if he doesn't want to give himself to the capital T, capital P power of God, then let him be exposed again in Paul's worldview to the principalities and powers. Now why? In your text, you'll see a very important henna clause in the Greek, uh, I-N-A, henna. So that. This is huge because this is the logical connective of the whole passage. So that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. So now, again, I know this is, look, I can't teach on these things without being a little bit per precise, so I'm sorry, but hang with me here. It should help us to all comfort ourselves by noticing that there's a difference between result and purpose. So Paul says, put him out with the result that his flesh will be sort of tormented by the reality of living outside of God. That's the result, and we all gasp. Like, what, the H-E double toothpicks? How could any minister do that? Aren't we trying to heal things? And how could you hand somebody over to Satan? Well, because the goal is different than the result. The purpose is precisely his salvation. That he would come to see the error of his ways and give himself to the covenant people of God. Now, this is why it's hugely important that in the passage, we're told to do this acting with the spirit, Paul says, because, you know, Paul is the prototypical charismatic. I mean, to Paul, this whole thing is animated and energized and led and gifted and infruited by the spirit. And so Paul says, you need to do this and you need to do it, if nothing else, with discernment, because this is really hard. Can I just say that I've been doing this for 40 years and this is really hard stuff? to know what is the case in which a community would actually do this and what actually is in the end redemptive and not punitive. And reasonable people disagree about these things all the time. 
And it's a part of what's given the church its sort of bad reputation in society is that for some we're too harsh, um, for others we're too lenient. This is really difficult stuff. And not least because I think in, in all of us, I, I mean I say that tongue in cheek, but in most of the church there would be this knee jerk reaction that would say, but wait, 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 wait. Matthew 7 says, do not judge or you will be judged in the same manner. <laughs> what are we going to do here? Jesus says, don't judge. Paul appears to be saying to judge. Is this a case, as some scholars would say, of Paul polluting the Jesus movement? Is this Paul inventing a kind of Christianity that Jesus would have never imagined? No, of course not. Paul's always dealing with Jesus. And there's an obvious continuity here, which I'll say more about in a moment. But this doesn't mean, when, when, when Jesus says don't judge, this doesn't mean tolerate all differences. Again, I, 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 I'm aware of the context in which I'm saying this, but I just want you to try this on for size. Is it possible that our current pluralism and relativism could actually, though it has good stuff in it, could actually lead to an indifference to the work of God or a lack of moral courage? Is that possible? I just want you to try that on for size. Is it possible that a lack of moral courage and an inability and unwillingness to be discreet about things, to see A for A and B for B, is actually providing an environment that is just inviting any kind of lack of moral courage? And therefore, please get this, therefore is creating in our culture a conspiracy of silence. On the one hand, we say the most horrible things to each other, especially on social media. On the other hand, there's a shaming and bullying that goes along with that and a conspiracy of silence. And I say this with a broken heart, I'm not mad at anybody. I don't pick on anybody. But you need to know it's a conspiracy of silence that allowed thousands and thousands of young boys all over this world to be abused by priests. Who had the moral courage to stand up and say, no, damn it. I don't care what this will do to the church. What about this boy? Or in my lifetime, I've spent most of my life supervising pastors. I've seen hundreds of pastors commit adultery, steal money, become bullies, hundreds. And a conspiracy of silence always allows that to happen. See, we think that caring means being non-judgmental and inclusive. That's we've sort of reduced caring to those ideas. Well, let's just not be judgmental so that we can therefore be inclusive. But again, I wanna say, it's those kind of views that make the most vulnerable among us the most hurt. Who gets hurt by those conspiracies of kindness? Women, who we have for concubines and mistresses, they get hurt. Who gets hurt in that scenario of caring? Children. The most vulnerable are always the ones who are the most hurt under those conspiracies of silence. This is why you cannot think of that caring as, um, you know, well, let me put it this way. That breaking the power of that conspiracy of silence, that is truly a justice issue. It's not a, well, you're being judgmental issue. 
It's saying no, no more treatment of women that way, no more treatment of children that way, no more will the most vulnerable of our society be treated by those in power disrespectfully and rudely and harmfully because we're afraid to talk about it. That's the justice of God, no more. It's not based in moralism, it's based in protecting the innocent. It's, it's God's insistence that the innocent will be protected. So can I just say that like that for Debbie and I, we sort of get this on a very personal level. I've had two cancer surgeries. Debbie's had at least three. I lose track. There's been so many procedures. I know what it's like to have a body that has something in it that will kill you. I remember at 40 years old realizing, okay, I have melanoma and reading about it. My, one of my closest friends has just died from it. And I, th- I remember lying in bed thinking, okay, I wonder what it's going to be like to die young. I get this. I get that there are sometimes things in a body that can kill you and that if you don't surgically remove them, they are going to kill you. And that's all Paul's saying. This will kill the covenant community because you can't simultaneously be living out of your sexual needs such that you're even willing to marry your or sleep with your father's wife. You can't have that kind of a mindset and worldview and be the people of God who exists for the sake of others. It will be one or the other. And all Paul's saying is if you let this grow rampant in the church, you will cease being the covenant people of God. It's that simple. But again, it's hard because we have this thing in us to not judge. But you just need to know that Matthew 7 is not a text about community discipline. Matthew 7 is a text about personal hypocritical self-righteousness. That's the whole, remember speck and moat and beam, remember that? That's a text that Jesus is talking about personal, spiritual, self-righteous hypocrisy. He's not talking about community discipline because actually if we follow his logic, remember we just read Matthew 18, at the end he says, look, if this person won't come around, well then you have to treat them like a tax collector. So he actually says the exact same thing as Paul. He just gives us a way of doing it. But the questions remain for us. Where are the lines drawn here? And like, how do we know? And this is where being a charismatic community in Paul's worldview, not the way we think of charismatics today, but what Paul would want to assure us is to know you can trust that there will be an external voice outside of your confused mind. The spirit will speak to the community and you'll know what to do because this is hard. I mean, think of Jesus' first posse. Peter was apparently really screwed up in his internal commitments. James and John were completely confused about who Jesus was. Lord, can we call down fire from heaven? Judas. And Jesus let all those people stay in his posse. And so this, this is, I don't mean to say this is easy. I mean to say that it's real. For me, what's guided me a lot over the years is that there's a big difference between weakness and wickedness. And I would think that it would comfort you That if I knew there was a predator in our midst that made your children up through high school kids vulnerable, I would hope that it would comfort you that I as a shepherd would deal with them. I would hope that that doesn't make me judgmental in protecting your children. So for me, I've just kind of, that's been my line. If somebody's just weak and they currently, they, you know, still occasionally fall into drinking or drugs or even acting out sexually and they're acting out of weakness, okay. But once they're a predator, not okay. Once it's a kind of cancer where they're drawing people into their behavior, not okay. Then we have to deal with it. 
So Paul and the church were not puritanical about sex. It's just that sex was the number one sin in the ancient world. And Paul's trying to bring these people, these new Gentile converts, into this, what we would say today, sort of Jewish worldview. And all I mean to say by that is you're the covenant people of God. But, but I want you to try to feel this. These Gentile Christians were experiencing an amazing spirituality, but it never really dawned on them that the Hebrew text spoke to them. It never dawned on them that we're being addressed by this. Like the Hebrews were addressed by this, but we're not addressed by this. We sort of live out of this Roman Greek philosophical world. And in fact, one of the things very alive in the Corinthian church would have been what we now today would call sophists. And sophists were just people who had clever ways of talking about things that could justify pretty much any behavior. That's one way of thinking about sophists. And so this is what's alive and real in these early Christian imaginations and worldview. And Paul's simply saying, no, you can't have that as a worldview. Your worldview has to be, you are the called and chosen people of God for whom he's renewing and transforming so that you can be his people on the earth. But instead of that, Paul sees this, this boasting, this sort of moral skepticism, and you know, this we've sort of arrived into a new plane that transforms that. But now think with me for a second, think of Paul's writings in, for instance, Ephesians and Colossians, and I wanna to try to get you again to think outside of you know, 21st century Western moral concepts, and think about Paul writing to new churches of new Christians, and, and let's, in, in the context in which we're talking this morning, let's ask ourselves, Paul, why did you say, put off your old self? And now I just beg of you to see that that's not a primarily a moralism. It's a put off your old sense of yourself that fundamental to what it means to be human is to fulfill your desires. Put that off. And realize that, no, you've been called to be the people of God. So put off all those things, he says, that belong to your former manner of life, which are corrupt through deceitful desires. Or to the Colossians. Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you. And rather put on, listen to this logic. Everybody, listen to this logic. And put on as God's chosen people. That's the paradigm here. That's the interpretive key. As God's chosen people, some things are appropriate, some things are inappropriate, and somebody has to make that call. Somebody has to see that different kinds of behaviors are different. And so there's no way of even knowing what's earthly to put off or new of God to put on unless you can hold in your mind the goodness of discreetness. Do you know what I mean by discreetness of, like, this is my right hand, this is my left hand, they're discreet things. We, we want to throw away any kind of discreetness in our culture today in favor of a kind of oneness that we don't have to then consider anything. That's not helpful. It's not useful. Discreetness is actually a good thing. It's positive. It's beautiful. And I want to encourage you to recover it. Recover its beauty. I mean, come on. You say you like Jesus, right? Right? Okay. It's Jesus who said, light, dark. Can you hear the discreetness? Sheep, goats, can you hear the discreetness? Wheat, tares, can you hear the discreetness? That's your Jesus who you say you love. That's not Paul perverting him. Jesus thought that there was an ethical beauty in human goodness to seeing things for what they are. But for Paul here in the Corinthians, they're experiencing a crisis of authority. 
similar to us. Where now is authority? I mean, we would want to say the Bible. But you know, from the Reformation forward, we've lost control of the Bible. Do you know the Civil War was driven by two different expositions of the biblical text? Do you know that blues and grays were given thousands and thousands, I think hundreds of thousands of Bibles were passed out on each side and each side was using the Bible to justify that war and their position in it. So there's a sense in which, and then you just fast forward to 2016 and you know, where now is authority? How can we know anything about this? And I mean, in the, I don't mean authority in the, uh, like, heaviness, I mean authority in that, you know, when I went to UCLA that day and that surgeon removed that melanoma from my back, it was good to know that he had authority. In fact, I remember he was the chief surgeon. He was the chief melanoma surgeon at UCLA. And they gave me one of those drugs where you're not exactly asleep all the way. And I remember him saying to the doctor that he was teaching, no, go deeper. Thank God. Could have saved my life. No, get bigger margins. Literally could have saved my life. I'm glad for his authority. I'm glad for his competency. And Paul simply invites you to see God, the, the world's creator Lord, the world's one true God has that kind of authority and he invites us into seeing the goodness of it, not always the knee-jerk sense that authority means bullying. So to the covenant community again, he says, can't you see that if you just let this go, if you don't care about it, it's going to be like leaven that leavens the whole lump. It's not about mere individuals. It's about Paul wanting to see in them, in their worldview, a separateness, a set-apartness, and that this would create in them a health and an integrity as the distinct people of God. But this actually gets at what underlies this is actually the doctrine of election. Can't you see that you were called and shaped by God for his purposes? So, so now I want to say something to you that I think is really important. The church is not a voluntary association. We're not the Red Cross. We're not World Vision. We're not a voluntary association in the slightest. We are the called, shaped, empowered, and gifted, and fruited people of God. And so just one little aspect of that, this is why I will never fundraise from you. It just turns us into a voluntary association. This is not the Red Cross, as good as the Red Cross is. How much better for us to give generously to the work of God in the world because it's our sense of who we are. Now, I'm happy to cultivate that in us. I'm happy to cultivate a good use of our time and money and energy, our checkbooks, our calendars, but I refuse to turn us into a, a thing where I'm raising money from you. That's just one example. I could go on and on with others. That once your imagination turns us in, the church into a voluntary association, it runs down a path that I don't think we want to go. So we too, like the Corinthians, I'm done here now, have forms of sort of super spiritual knowledge happening amongst us, the sense that we're liberated from outdated norms. But I just want to suggest again that to be salt and light, to make a powerful and loving contribution in the world, the church must be distinguished clearly from its destructive cultural environment. 
And I wanna say that this is Trinitarian work. It's not an invention of Paul. The Father created the world and created the people. The Son redeemed that world. The Spirit, through power and gifts and fruit, makes that world come to, see, come to, come to pass. And so again, I try to feel this in your imagination, that this Trinitarian insistence on what God's doing in his people just means that the other side of that coin is a discipline. Otherwise, there's no real insistence. So part and parcel with God's insistence is that we should work with him in that. And that if we should lose the ability to differentiate between Christian freedom and disgraceful behavior, is not Paul right? Should we not mourn? As we have a quiet moment now, I just want to suggest to you that next up, we'll say the creed. And this is a weekly act of spiritual discipline that allows you to say, yes, this is my story. This is my bottom line commitment. This is the people of whom I am part. And we'll have what we call prayers of the people. These are little weekly disciplines to help you orient your heart to the heart of God. And then we'll confess our sins. We'll notice in the context of God's overarching love, the places where we're malaligned with the covenant purposes of God. So take a moment now to prepare your heart to engage in those spiritual disciplines.